Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. This podcast is brought to you by Kyoto Japan Automotive Group, a company which I've known personally for over 20 years, and your one-stop shop for tires, batteries, and auto parts. Visit their website at www.kyotojap.com for more details. Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. My newest guest is Jared Bibler. He tells a remarkable personal story of serendipity, of stamina, and the surreal, and then wrote a best-selling book about corruption and the financial crisis in Iceland. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. My guest today has a remarkable personal story which combines serendipity for being in the right place at the right time, stamina for seeing a very difficult situation, in fact, a crisis, through to the bitter end, and the surreal for ending up as part of an investigative team into the crimes, the financial crimes, and crimes of corruption that he saw unfold, and then writing a best-selling book about it. His book is called Iceland's Secret, The Untold Story of the World's Biggest Con, and it's the story of the most dramatic crash of a country's economy which took place in 2008. Perhaps you remember it. The Financial Times describes the book as jaw-dropping, a fantastic read and an eye-opener and cautionary tale. We're going to hear that untold story from someone who actually lived it. My guest is originally from the United States of America, a graduate in engineering from MIT, a chartered financial analyst and had a successful career in Boston and in New York's Wall Street and now lives in the German-speaking part of Switzerland. Jared Bibler, welcome to the McKay interview. Thanks for traveling all this way to be with me in Fune, my village, where we're sitting in the quiet or the relatively quiet corner <laughs> of the Auberge Les Ballons, which I wholeheartedly recommend listeners to summer and winter travelers alike. Jared, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to be here and, and to be with you. I look forward to this. Jared, I'm, I'm going to m- make rapid progress because I can hear the clatter of cups and glasses and plates yes, yep. as the restaurant prepares to serve uh, customers for lunch. Tell me, your story is unusual and remarkable. How did you come to choose Iceland as a place to live and work and when? So that was in about 2004. Uh, yeah, actually, I, I stumbled into Iceland. It was a sort of a, a, a mistake or a... It, 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 it came out of a sort of a, uh, international travel um, uh, so Iceland Air was offering uh, cheap fares basically f- between Boston and, uh, and uh, Europe so you took the cheap ticket I took a cheap ticket I went to Sweden I came back via Iceland Iceland Air would let you I think they still do this they would let you stay there for uh, a couple of days for, for no extra fare on the ticket so I stayed there in 2002 I came back and my friend said, how was Sweden? I said, Sweden? I didn't even remember that I had been in Sweden because all I would talk about was Iceland at that point. I really fell in love with you the place. You fell in love with the place. Yeah. And yeah. so I moved there just about two years later in 2004. Okay. Well I, well, I mean, what did you actually do there? I mean, I've seen the language written and I've heard it spoken and it's not the easiest. How yeah. did you manage both personally and professionally? Well, I got hired by a small Icelandic company that was in my field, which at the time was back office software for Wall Street. And, but they, they didn't really want to hire me. I kind of had to beg a little bit. And they said, uh, okay, we'll take you, but you have to, do, you have to conduct your, your business in Icelandic when you're here. You have to, we speak Icelandic in this company. And I said, okay, I'll take, I'll take lessons. And they put me in with the toughest 
so teacher in the immersion, country. Immersion course. Immersion course, yeah. four hours every morning. And actually, if you would study it as, a, as someone who uh, speaks universally level English yourself, you would start to see the connections very quickly. Really? Yeah. Really? yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I, take, I take your word for it, Sharon. <laughs> okay. So look, set the scene for me and for the listeners. What was the state of Iceland and its economy when you arrived? And take me carefully through your story of when things started to appear odd in mm-hmm. the financial services sector in which you were working mm-hmm. and what types of things appeared. And for the benefit me, those listening with little in-depth knowledge of how financial markets and transactions work, please explain why such transactions appeared odd. Give mm-hmm. some examples of what wrong and odd looked like inside the financial institutions with which you were closely involved. Please. Okay, well, there were some signs when I got there that things were, I had entered a different world. For example, I was seeing a private jet fly over my house a few times a day, which I had almost never seen in where I lived in Boston. From, from the United States, from Boston, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, and in, in, in Reykjavik, suddenly, I'm in a, in, a, in a tiny city. I mean, the old town of Reykjavik, the center, is maybe, it's like a village. Yeah. I mean, there's just a few streets, a few shopping streets and so on. And, and imagine you're in this little fishing village and you're seeing private jets fly over, you know, three, four times an afternoon. So that was kind of like, and I would ask my Icelandic friends, well, wh- why are there so many private planes here? And they would say, well, you're from America. Isn't that how it, how it is? And I said, no, I've never seen it like this. There, and then there was just a, a huge boom in building. Uh, and I said, like, who's going to buy all these new houses that they're... Commercial building or domestic or um, both? So this was uh, a lot of residences. Residential. Yeah, yeah. around the city. These you know, just huge projects, just crane, construction cranes everywhere. Um, so there was really a boom going on. And the, the currency was getting stronger by a few percent a month <laughs> against the dollar, against the euro. So our, our feeling of wealth was kind of growing monthly. You take your salary, you put it back into dollars and say, wow. And then people were using that wealth. They were taking trips. Even, even people of fairly modest means could afford to fly all the way to Boston for a weekend of shopping. <laughs> no, really? Yes. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. So there was, there was a real bubble there, um, which I had kind of stepped into. It, in 2002, it was beginning. That's when I was a, a first visitor there. By 2004, it was really swinging. And it was kind of the the good fortune that the country had been waiting a thousand years to have. Because mm. for a thousand years, Iceland was the poorest place in Europe. Yeah. And really, really started. But like Switzerland, start, I think, in yeah. previous times, yeah. But at, but at least Switzerland has topsoil that can grow things. Well, just in parts. <laughs> yeah, in yeah. parts, yeah. right. Um, and, and so to get to, to get to the next part of your question, um, then I eventually was, was working in one of these banks. And for those of us who had worked in other, you know, in London or other financial centers, we saw a lot of very uh, funny things going on around us. Um, and what's a funny thing? Well, for example, um, g- giving giving an investment fund at two different prices to two different customers, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, to. Selling something uh, to to a small customer at price X, uh, and then when you want to bring in a big pension fund or something, making making him a special price, which effectively means that the other investors in the fund subsidize him to come in, for example. Or it turned out later that one of the biggest investment funds in the country, which was a money market fund, just a, a, a savings vehicle for average retail people, 
it had two sets of books for that fund, meaning they had the number that they published to the market of what the fund is worth, but the fund managers on the side have a second Excel spreadsheet where they're tracking what, what's actually in there. And that's, that's never a good sign when you have... And when you, when you sort of mentioned this as something that you regarded as unusual mm. to your peers and to your superiors, mm. what do they say to you? I was never popular in that bank. <laughs> never <laughs> popular. Um, there's, a part, there's a point in the book, I don't know if, if you've got to that part yet, but um, someone related to us wants us to wire 5 million euros to a, to a new account. I read, I read you read that, this yeah, part. I read that. To, to an account in Norway. They just gave us a, an account number in Norway, and they said, send 5 million of the investment fund's money. We want to do an investment. And I said, yeah, but when you do an investment, you need some paperwork or something. So I, I, I raised that to my boss, the head of uh, alternative asset management at, at, at the oldest bank in Iceland. I said, look, shouldn't we demand some documentation before we send our customers' money out into the world? He said, oh, why are you making problems, Jared? You know, so I was deeply unpopular for asking any questions. It was a, inside the banks, it was an environment of just everything's got to move all the time. No, no friction. Okay, so you were basically running against the, uh, the current in that respect. Yeah. Which so I, tell me, when, when did things start to go wrong? Well, I think they started to go wrong in 2002 or even, even before, looking back. Before you arrived. Yeah, 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 yeah. looking back now. Uh, when the banks, the banks, you know, Iceland only had at that time about 250,000 people in the whole country. So it has some very small local banks. It was half the size of the canton of Geneva. That's right. just to give people a sense of right. scale. Right. Yeah. And so imagine for those few people, they had, yeah, they, they need savings banks and so on. So it had some small banks. It had a bank that financed the fishermen, a bank that financed the agriculture. But those banks were, pri and those banks were government, more or less government-owned up, up until the 90s. And they were sort of privatized, but they were, they were privatized, but they weren't done privatized in a very transparent way. They were basically given out to cronies of the, of the powerful politicians in the country. And I think that was the original sin of the, of the, of the whole, um, everything that followed. So my next question is probably a bit redundant, and I, d I wondered, as I was reading through, uh, reading your book, if systems existed within the institutions um, to allow you to draw attention to these unusual occurrences not, and then even to attempt to correct them. Not really. Not really. Not really. Not really. I mean, they had in the end, um, they, they tried to grow the banks in the model of bigger European banks. So they would, in the end, they had to, department called risk management, or they had people with those title compliance. Um, but those were even more toothless than they would be in, you know, in a, in a mainland European bank in Iceland. They were just there to, to say that they, you know, just there for, for show, I think. And were there any other sort of kindred spirits at your peer level that must yes. have had some sympathy yes. with your unease? Yes. Surely. There was a gentleman I worked with who uh, was deeply uneasy. He, he had he was an older guy, and he'd worked in London uh, in different banks there. And he, he was, we would sort of whisper together about things. But, um, but we were, it's hard to be a foreigner in Iceland. I think it's maybe a little better now. But at that point, I was one of the only professional foreigners in, that I knew. So you're quite isolated in that respect. Yeah. yeah. And, and you would get, you would get uh, called a Utlendinger, <laughs> even as a joke or not really a joke. So... Yeah. People would catcall you on the street or something. Really, as yeah. openly as that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no shame. No shame about it. One woman told me to um, when she found out I was American, and this was during the first or this was during the second Iraq War, I guess, right? Um, and she said, "Oh, you're from there. Well, you better you better keep keep a low profile here." 
you know, this is really... Um, and this is a stranger or somebody you knew? Stranger. Stranger. Yeah. My gosh. Yeah. Okay. Well, my guest today is Jared Bibler, author of the best-selling book, Iceland's Secret, the untold story of the world's biggest con. And we're talking about the financial crisis of 2008 in that country. Jared, tell me, what were the consequences of these malpractices for the institutions, for the clients, and for the employees? And what was the cumulative effect of all this on the economy of Iceland and on Iceland's financial rating? And lastly, how did it affect you personally? Okay, that's a lot of questions. Yeah, a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, well, these banks grew. They were doubling their balance sheet in size every year for, for the every middle. Year. Yeah, for the middle of that decade. And they grew each to be the size of an Enron. Uh, not adjusted for population, really, the absolute, you know. So they were, uh, they were giant institutions, uh, much bigger than the economy of the country. And for those listening who may not be familiar, Enron was a huge American corporation that went down in the mid, it was, mid-90s. It was 01, I think. Yeah, 01, yeah. 01. So, yeah. Right, so yeah. what was interesting about that is that had just happened right before these banks started their Enron-style growth spurt. Yes. Yes. And all the books about Enron were coming out. People were, Enron was really in the, in the business news in those years, 2003, three, four, And that's when the banks were actually, and inside they were very similar to Enron in a way. But it was like those lessons were not even heard there. Uh, I, I think everybody, every country thinks that they're, they're kind of unique. Of course. Yeah. 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 We, we know how to do this. We're living in one just like that. <laughs> yes. The president of Iceland would go, would, would go to Davos on the private jet of one of the bankers or one of the businessmen, and he would say things, and this is not a direct quote, I'm paraphrasing, but it was like, we found the holy grail of finance in Iceland, and we found a way to make banking work much better than anybody else, <laughs> those type of things. You said that publicly yeah. in Davos. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. it was along those lines. Yeah. 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 And that would have been like 05, 06, sometime like that. Meanwhile, the banks are just growing and growing and growing. So when did the ratings agencies um, begin to see and to reflect some change? Uh, they even, the ratings agencies in 07, even increased the ratings of the Icelandic banks to triple A. Well, how could that be? <laughs> they said, falsely, they said that they're, they're too big, because the Icelandic uh, national debt had been triple A. Iceland had a pretty good, good record of that. Um, and so they said, well, it's, these are tied to the, the nation, but they, they, they didn't take into account that they were much bigger than the nation. They said, well, if they get in trouble, Iceland will bail them out. Well, that Iceland seems so obvious. I mean, right. I'm surprised to hear that. I'm not and, a financial man. And then they, they realized their mistake after a couple of months and, and rolled it back. There was, the biggest questions came not from the rating, ratings agencies, but the credit, um, credit departments of other banks in 06, and that perpetuated the mini-crisis of 06, where... Um, which should have actually, which was the beginning of, of, the, of Icelandic banks' collapse. But they just wallpapered over that and kept, kept growing. And um, you personally, how did it affect you? Well, they, then they all collapsed in one week. In one week? Yeah. Oh <laughs> they all collapsed between Monday and Thursday, actually. It was just in three days. Um, and they, I mean, it ruined us as a country. And ruined us personally. We lost our, in, in the end, it took us a couple of years, but we lost our house. Um, we lost access to all of our savings. I mean, we ended up walking away with maybe a fifth, uh, sorry, a tenth of our savings at, at the end of it. And this was just cash, cash savings. Yeah. But it yeah. was in that money market fund, sure. which had two sets of books. Yeah. So yeah. the money market... In the wrong set of books. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Uh, so, and for most of our friends also, I mean, it, it set us back in our lives 
to zero. It's like being a teenager again. You have mm. no more money. Yeah. You're worried about how to buy food at the store, all those type of things. Uh, that was that was Iceland in 2009. And many other people must have been affected by it. But the I'm whole, interested that you still country. you use the word use the third person us and not them. You feel well, some I'm sort a, of affinity. I'm an so Icelandic citizen. You're that, a citizen of that, the country. That's my country. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I hadn't realized yeah. that. Yeah. You've given up your American citizenship. I did that later. Yeah. Good God. Yeah. For a while, I had both, yeah. and then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's quite unusual. Though the, an increasing number of Americans in this country, in Switzerland, have been giving up their citizenship and, and just keeping the one Swiss passport. Right. I've noticed right. that over the last ten years or so. So tell me, in the end, because um, I haven't yet finished reading the book, and without ruining, so this is maybe a right. spoiler. <laughs> spoiler alert. So I'm going to get into yeah. trouble with your publisher. But give me some <laughs> sense, give the listeners some sense of what actually happened. Well, we, so the reason I wrote the book is that I had a really unique opportunity, which I'm very grateful for still, which is that I was one of the very first who got to investigate these collapsed banks. And that was a very enjoyable time of my career. Um, it was hard, the hardest I've ever worked. But you're not a forensic man, so well, how, did I, that, how I, did that come I to became you? <laughs> you became one. You became yeah. one. You had an interest as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I had been studying all those Enron books, right? And I was like, well, now I had my own three Enrons to look at, and almost with almost no support for, for the first year, year and a half. Uh, and what we found was some of the largest cases of, of market fraud ever prosecuted and became prosecuted, ever seen in the world. Um, the three banks had been manipulating their share price every day going back five or ten years. So they had created the illusion of their own success and prosperity by, by manipulating the perceptions of the whole country and manipulating the whole market. So, uh, and I didn't get to mention this, but the, market, the stock market crashed 97% when the banks so completely wiped, wiped out. out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we... Uh, we eventually had a very, really lovely team of investigators, 17 investigators, um, and we... Uh, they're, all they're all foreigners. No, 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 we're all... Yeah. all, all we, had our, we had our pick of, of, of applicants, you know, we had hundreds of people, because the unemployment rate had just zoomed, <laughs> yes, so we could choose... I should laugh at that. We could yeah. choose... This was a really inter interesting... I don't know if I, this is in the book, but... It, we had so many people to choose from. We had hundreds of applicants for each position. And so we, we really made them jump through some hoops. We gave them actual um, tests, you know, like case studies. And funnily, the ones with the best CVs often did not do well on those case studies. And people who maybe just came out of university didn't have any experience at all. We hired some of them because they were so brilliant on their case studies. We wanted open-minded, smart, motivated investigators. So, and that's what we got. So we had a beautiful team. We started making... Um, I think we sent in the end 17 people. We sent 80, around 80 criminal case referrals to a new special prosecutor. And did anybody go to jail in the end? Yeah, a few people went to jail. Not, not for very long. <laughs> Maybe max a year. A year? Yeah. And they were senior people or yeah, was it the middle guy? The CEOs. CEOs. We, we and the prosecutor insisted on uncovering the cases, which is, you know, to, to really... There was, there was some political pressure to, to keep the people that we named in these referrals to keep them the low-level people. Um, but with the prosecutor's support, we went, we went up the chain, and there was plenty of evidence to show that the very top And in the country that small, they must all be somehow connected through family associations. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, you, it's, you, it's you, natural. I would, mm. I, 
I spent a lot of time reading the emails of a certain person, in one, a senior person in one of these banks as part of an investigation. And then later I saw him at the gym in the locker room. He didn't know who I was, but it was very uncomfortable for me to, to, to run into someone who I kind of know intimately, but he has no idea who I am. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, it was, it was difficult for many, many, many reasons. But the, the, the upshot of the whole thing was that, and this is the spoiler alert, so your, your <laughs> listeners can, but basically, uh, despite all this great team and this great work, we got shut down very quickly. Shut down? By whom? Um, nobody knows, but there was, a, there was a reorganization within the regulator at that time, and suddenly the, the investigation team, which I had spent a few years building, was um, sort of reallocated to other departments of the regulator, and it was just, it was just evaporated. So it was a mystery. It's a mystery. A mystery. A mystery like to me to this day, yeah. who, where that pressure came from or, or how that was stopped, because we had maybe cracked the spine on 5 or 10% of the cases. And there was, we had a huge plan going forward. Then the new management of the regulator, then I quit at that point. The new management a few months later made a press conference, and they said, all the crisis investigations are, are finished. Just like that? Just like that. Yeah. And that was it. My God. Yeah. Jared, I've got an interesting experience. Ten years ago, on this same program, I had as my guest um, Dr. Reiner Gibson-Brandon, mm-hmm. professor of finance at the University of Geneva. She's the managing director of the Geneva Finance Research Institute. And she's highly regarded. Uh, and at that time, I was about, she was about three years into undertaking some behavioral finance research together with the University of Zurich into what, certain, what corrupts certain people. Mm-hmm. I think it's called the bad apple theory. Okay. And, so I've hit the microphone. She told me that the research showed that about one-third of people actually tell the truth. Only one-third. Right. And maybe I'm a bit naive, but I was surprised at the, the, the that's, smallness. That seems high to me. That seems high to you. <laughs> See, well, maybe you have a more skeptical but, and but. sensible view of you know, human nature. But she also told me about what she called protected values. Uh-huh. And these are values that someone would not be prepared to trade or forego for any price. And honesty is one of those protected values. Yeah. What's more, she told me that the research shows that dishonesty in people increases when under pressure. Yes. I guess no surprise there, yep. really. However, my strongest recollection of the radio conversation was when she told me that most individuals are malleable, was her word, and that human nature and greed are everlasting. Well, we know that. We just have to read the Old Testament and even yep. before that. But tell me more about your observations of personal behavior based on your observations in Iceland, and would you agree with her findings? Yes, I agree, and I've been thinking a lot about this. This is great that you asked me this. Because the people, even, even the senior people who did go to prison, my understanding is they, to this day, don't admit that they did anything wrong. Um, they say that this was a witch hunt and, and so on, despite all the evidence, despite the emails and, and everything showing how they were involved in some of these crimes. Um, I think it's very important for people in... I think if, I think if if you're a real criminal, like if you're uh, running drugs into Europe or something like this, uh, you know that you're. Uh, uh, you, you know, you know if 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 you're really a mafioso, mafioso, for example, you know that you're a criminal. You you take steps to hide, but white collar criminals are often working in C suites, right? And they don't want to admit this to themselves or their families or their, um, you know. They're friends. It's funny you should say that. I have a dear friend uh, who was for many years a very, very senior officer in the um, Canadian 
mounted police in white collar fraud. Yep. And I once asked him years ago what was the most satisfying aspect of his job. Yep. And he said, sitting in front of a criminal, when you've caught him or her, but it's usually him, yep. uh, and after months of the expression on his face saying, you'll never work out what I did, you did work out yes. what he did. <laughs> and then he wants to know, what did I do wrong? That's what satisfaction is all about. Yeah. But I'm just curious to know a bit more about um, you know, your experience of human behavior at that level, those people. Well, but th they were enabled by the greed of the whole society. You know, uh, We all loved when our currency was going up you know, 10% a year in value and we could fly anywhere in the world. And, and I think one of the reasons that the investigations were shut down is because people don't like to, societies even, don't, we don't like to come face to face with that. We, we would rather have hope. Of course, yeah, right. that's natural, I think. But a very wise man told me uh, recently, this actually from the book, I've met many wonderful people like yourself th through this book, very wise person told me, he said something I never thought of. He said, within hope, there is always greed. And I had never heard it put that way before. And I think that's, um, that's the thing to maybe take away is that, and, and by the way, I, don't, I, think the, I think the book is very positive, even though it ends the way it ends. Well, t two things. I think financial systems are... Um, and why this story is relevant beyond Iceland. I think our financial system is set up with quite a few wrong incentives. And so we all have a risk of an Iceland happening where, where we live. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. Um, I mean, could it happen? Could yeah. what happened there happen in Switzerland? Absolutely. Or, um, It'll be different, and maybe it won't be so bad because the banks are not so big as compared. But, but yes, catastrophic things could happen as a result of the imbalances that we've built up in our financial systems. But what does it take for that to happen? That's what I don't really understand. No, no, in, the, in these ratios, these relationships. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> no. But that's very difficult. So legislators, policymakers, regulators are on a hiding to nothing. Well, no. I know how I... Well, the, the optimistic piece I want to leave you with is that it could be pre prevented... But we need to incentivize the people like me and the whispering Englishman in the bank. We need to incentivize those people. For example, compliance departments or risk management. They need to get their bonus on how many deals they stopped. Right? So they need to say, and I, I don't know many banks today that work this way. But if, if you're in a sort of an oversight capacity, or us at the regulator, we should be incentivized for how, wh how big of a case can we investigate and close in terms of a monetary size? Without giving a margin for corruption there, because if you put an incentive at the other end, that also might yeah, impact corruption. It's, it's, yeah. Human but, beings being what they are. Yes. But there's, right now there's not much incentive in that direction at all, and anywhere. Um, the, the incentive of everybody in the financial system is to go along to get along, to get to the next quarter, to close the books. And not to be conspicuous. And not to be conspicuous. Mm -hmm. And that is very dangerous um, because the financial system isn't just the playground of billionaires. We use the financial system to settle payments, to, to make credit cards. And, and um, that was really made obvious to us in Iceland when the banks crashed. We, we did, couldn't access our savings accounts, right? We, and it, it was really close turned out we were just hours away from a complete breakdown of the payment system in the country, where even 
even credit cards would not work. Uh, even bank transfers between the banks could have completely broken. It was, it was close to being a disaster. And the former prime minister said they, they were close to, this is a quote, 30 years of anarchy in the country um, if things went a little bit worse than they did. And they were already felt pretty bad. But, um, the, but another thing that saved us in Iceland is it's a cohesive society in the end. Because it's so small. It's small and, yeah. and people feel like they're, it's, 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 they're, they're somewhat related to it's each a family. other. Yeah. It's, it's a big family. Yeah. And so that, in that way, we stuck together. But in a, more, in a more fragmented place like where I grew up in the U.S., if, if such a thing had happened there, it would be 30 years of anarchy. Sure, yeah. sure. Last question, Jared. You're now living in Switzerland. Why, are you, why did you choose Switzerland, and how long have you been living here, and what do you do here? Well, we, th thank you, uh, we, we cho chose to make a new start, as many Icelanders did in those years. So after the investigation team was, was wound down, um, I said to my wife, let's 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 go somewhere where we can <laughs> yes. where we can save money again and and build and build a new life, uh, and we chose to come here because yep. we we wanted to be near the mountains. Yeah, and we and we got great jobs in uh, in Zurich. I was working. Uh, we were both working for Deloitte Forensic. At that point, it's uh, a great name. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I've since worked uh, as the head of surveillance and enforcement at the Swiss Stock Exchange Six, and right now I have my own firm, Katla. I do uh, recently just finished a big fraud investigation, so I do uh, I do kind of two things. The, the 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 tagline of the firm is clean finance, so that's both uh, forensic investigations, mostly on um, market abuse topics, but also I do a lot of work in sustainable finance, and also the overlap between sustainable finance and fraud, like uh, anti greenwashing, is a topic that's now coming to the fore quite a bit. Fascinating. Yeah, we're out of time, but thanks for your frankness and your openness. I hope your book continues to sell well, and good luck in all that you do. My guest today has been Jared Bibler, author of Iceland's Secret, the untold story of the world's biggest con. Thanks again, Jared. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the McKay Interview podcast, brought to you by Kyoto Japan Automotive Group, a company which I've known personally for over 20 years, and your one-stop shop for tyres, batteries and auto parts. Visit their website at www.kyotojap.com for more details. And you can find more podcasts on Anchor FM. Just Google McKay Interview Anchor FM. Thanks again for listening.